0: Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the Society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. The Handel and Haydn Society's annual performances of Handel's Messiah are a Boston tradition enjoyed by upwards of 7,000 concertgoers and innumerable radio listeners. In today's episode, we'll explore the creation of H&H's most recent performance of the work, I say creation because this was no ordinary performance. Rather, this was a streamed event, created in direct response to the pandemic crisis, undertaken not only with artistic impact in mind, but also a societal one. And it was originated, developed, and recorded in collaboration with another of Boston's cultural marvels and one of H&H's frequent partners, WGBH, the nation's leading creator of multi-platform media for public radio. The Handel and Haydn Society is named after two composers who, at the time of our founding in 1815, symbolized both the ancient and modern height of choral composition. Even now, we frequently program Handel's oratorios, and we've performed and recorded Haydn symphonies, violin concertos, and choral works. But one of our namesake's works has been woven into our story more than any other, and that work is Handel's Messiah. Joining me today are Anthony Rudell and David Sneed. Tony is the general manager of GBH Music, as well as station manager at WCRB, Boston's all-classical radio station. In addition to his over four decades in radio broadcasting, Tony is a lecturer, educator, arts administrator, and the author of four books, including his most recent, Hello Everybody, The Dawn of American Radio. Tony, thank you so much for being here.
1: Great to be with you.
0: David Sneed is president and CEO of the Handel & Haydn Society. Before taking the reins at H&H in 2015, he served in leadership roles in numerous orchestras, including those of Hartford, Milwaukee, and Pittsburgh, and was the longtime vice president for marketing at the New York Philharmonic. He has overseen audience expansion, numerous recording and touring projects, and most recently has led the Society's response directed both at our musicians and our audience To the COVID crisis. David, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, great to be here, Guy.
0: David, I'd like to start with you. Would you give our listeners a history of the Handel and Haydn Society's relationship with Handel's Messiah?
2: Well, we performed Handel's Messiah at our very first concert ever on Christmas Day in 1815. Uh, That was just a couple of excerpts, including the Hallelujah chorus. we gave the U.S. premiere of the complete Messiah in 1818, and we've been performing it every year since 1854. There are certain ensembles that you associate with certain pieces of music. that You just, you know, they do it the best. Uh, you don't want to hear Satisfaction done by anybody but the Rolling Stones. I want to hold your hand. It's got to be the Beatles. Um, and, and with classical music, you know, there's, I think about, you want to hear Mahler by the Vienna Philharmonic. Other orchestras do Mahler fantastically, but there's a certain affinity they have because he led the orchestra for so long for his music. You know, the B.S.O., you want to hear Bartok for Orchestra by them. You want to hear Ravel by them, I believe. They, they, that really shows off the beauty of that ensemble and they just have an affinity for it. I think you could argue that H&H owns Messiah uh, like nobody else. Uh, we performed at 431 times. Uh, this year was our 432nd, thanks to Tony's uh, amazing commitment to this project uh, and many other people. And, I, you know, I've, I've heard this orchestra that pre- performed every year since 2015. And when you have a, a conductor like Harry Christophers, who is a choral conductor and really an expert in this repertoire, working with the same musicians, virtually every year for what was it now, 12 years, after that time, there really is a connection and understanding of the piece that I think is kind of unique, at least in the U.S. So I think, uh, you know, maintaining that tradition of this year was one of the things we were most concerned about when the pandemic hit back
0: in March. Thank you, David. So the pandemic has stopped so many facets of life in their tracks and the arts is among the worst hit. Apart from the obvious loss of regular performances, H&H also stood in danger of having this tradition of annual performances uh, of Messiah interrupted. This is the 167th year that we've been doing this. How did you respond to the possibility of this localized catastrophe?
2: Well, I would say that from very early on, uh, when we started to realize that this pandemic was going to... uh, uh go on for a while you know into this season one of our major concerns was to find a way to do messiah we had done it what was it 166 consecutive years and uh Uh, i didn't want that that uh streak uh, to end on my watch uh i think also we saw that it was a fantastic opportunity for h to do something for the community that nobody else could do you know if we could find a way to do a Messiah with that piece's universal message of hope, and its inspiration uh, for all of Boston, then that would really be uh, would be something really good for the community, and and so we worked on this really all summer long. How are we going to be able to do it? Um, are we going to be able to get a chorus together? Is it going to be safe to get a chorus together and an orchestra together? And uh, finally, you know, then in in August, I guess it was, we got the news that the state had banned singing. And uh, that's when I thought, boy, this is, <laughs> I don't know uh, if this is going to be possible. And uh, I reached out to Ann uh, Fudge, whom I knew, uh, she's the uh, chairman of the board of GBH, and I knew her from uh, the New York Phil, and she's a good friend and a subscriber to H&H, great music lover, and, and asked her, she thought something might be possible with GBH, and she brought Tony into the story, and that's when things really started to happen. so I guess I'd say it was something we were working on from the beginning of the pandemic
0: to see if we could pull this off so GBH and CRB have been partners to the Handel and Haydn Society over the years, but what advantage in particular drew you to seeking this partnership for this project as opposed to undertaking it alone?
2: It would yeah. have been <laughs> impossible to do it alone, uh, particularly if video is uh, your only choice. Uh, we don't have that expertise in house at H and H. We hadn't really developed a strong, uh, digital video presence. And, you know, Tony is, is somebody that I met shortly after I came to town and we've worked on a number of things together. The Amadeus project a couple of years ago really stands out and he's a very, very creative and very collaborative guy. And, and I thought that, uh, uh, he was the obvious choice to to call for help on this.
0: So Tony, you've known David and you know H&H and WGBH has been a consistent partner over the years, but this project was not something that was planned years in advance, right? Uh, what was your reaction to this initial inquiry from David?
1: Well, I think you you have to you know, put everything in perspective. I mean, when I came to CRB 7 years ago, from New York. I realized that the the greatest strength of of a radio station in, in a market like this would be to be the centerpiece of the music business. That we should be we are the largest platform. We are the loudest megaphone. And therefore, it's our job to work across as many arts organizations as we can. I think that's that's one of our central roles. Um, I had to at that point redirect where the energies were going because i don't think it was done well but um you know clearly uh our relationship with the boston symphony and uh, i could list 20 other arts organizations in the city are all paramount but um when david came uh, and joined h and h he and i as he indicated got together and um you know, you, you there are certain people you can just say, okay, I get what he's doing, he gets what I'm doing. How do we work together to move both of our uh, our our balls, if you will, so that they move in, in tandem? And um, we we did that and we've done that in the past. He mentioned the Amadeus Project, but they're also, I think, of the broadcasts that we've done as a, as a matter of course. You know, we look at the season that uh, you guys put together ahead of time. And we go, okay, we're going to do a broadcast out of this one, out of this one, out of this one, out of this one, because we think that shows H&H to its best best advantage. We also know that there's a level of artistry that we're going to get that, you know, takes that out of the equation. I don't have to sit there and worry, ooh, is it going to be a good performance? You know, yes, every orchestra has an off day, let's be honest. But they're few and far between, and our broadcasts have shown that. So when David called me up on this uh, issue, on the Messiah, when he said the phrase, we haven't missed a performance in 167 years, and, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about history as, you know, my own writing, I started thinking about what that meant. That meant that there was a civil war, and they did Messiah. That meant there was World War One and World War Two, and they did Messiah. That meant there was a Great Depression, and they performed Messiah. And, of course, then it hit me that in 1917 and 1918, there was a pandemic. And yet, H&H performed Messiah. So, as David said, he wasn't going to let it happen on his watch that it doesn't get done. My attitude at that point was, well, what can I do to make sure it happens? And I realized early on, and, and David and I spent a lot of time, as, as he said, on the phone together beginning in August, I spent a lot of time thinking about how do you reimagine this? Because it it isn't Handel's Messiah as Handel would have seen it, or heard it, or experienced it. So you have to, as a broadcaster in today's world, think about the environment and the audience. And I think that's what we did, and I think that's what we did really pretty damn well.
2: And I just want to say that, uh, you know, (laughs) the final product uh, really is is a real tribute to uh, Tony and the GBH team, uh, as well as the musicians of H&H. Because when I first thought about could we broadcast this, I just had this simple idea, let's broadcast a concert. You know, let's get in Symphony Hall and let's put the musicians on stage and, and in the balconies, and let's just shoot it and broadcast that. and And he he was the one who said, "No, we can we can do something different here. We can we can really do things uh, in in video that'll make this much more relevant to what Boston's going through right now, and really connect with people more strongly." And I think that was a leap that took this project to a totally different level it actually was very consonant with what i'd wanted to do which is do something for boston today that you know it's consistent with this time we're in right now but he thought about how you can actually do that visually and i think the commitment tony of you and your colleagues at gbh was above and beyond anything we could have thought and uh all hats off hats off it, to you and your team. Thank
1: you. Well, and, and you know, look, it, it, a collabor- a good collaboration has everybody working together and and I will confess and I'm, I'm going to reveal something that David knows is during those months from August to November, there were ups and downs. I mean, there were days when David would call me and go, "Can't do it. We've got a new <laughs> problem." And I'd go, "Like hell you can't do it. Fix the problem." And there were days when I would wake up and I'd go, why in God's name did I agree to do this? This is killing me. It's killing our staff. But it's in moments like that that you say, you know, we have to do this. This this wasn't an option. And David talked about, just now he said the words, give a gift to Boston. I think you used those words with me in our first conversation early in August. Right. You said to me then, I'd love to do something for Boston, and I said, "Yes, but it's Boston today. it's not Boston eighteen fifteen, and we need to think in those terms and the The fortunate thing is that a the orchestra parts of the you know small ensembles had been in our studio shooting before, so it wasn't as if it was alien to you guys and secondly. We had produced so many concerts at that point out of our studio that my team was like, let's take it to the next level. (laughs) And that's what this was. This literally was, okay, we've done, you know, one orchestra with eight people. Gee, that was easy. What do we do now? I've got an idea. Let's figure out how to make eight voices sound like 24 in a room that wasn't meant for recording voices. And you know, uh, I I take very little credit. Uh, it's very very gracious of David to give me credit. I I played the role of um, executive producer in the traditional sense of that word, where I simply said to people, "Here's the problem. You guys are brilliant technicians. How do we solve the problem?"
2: Well, I was just going to say. I, didn't, I was going to actually ask you a question, Guy. Uh, but I was going to say first that. One other thing that helped us with this was that we have experience performing Handel in a small ensemble, the one-to-a-part orchestra that we used. Uh, you know, Ian Watson has been doing uh, Messiah that way at his church in Lincoln for a while, uh, using H and H musicians. So we were comfortable, I think, performing it with a small group like that. The first time I heard the one-to-a-part Messiah in Lincoln with Ian's group i think i was sitting about two feet away from your feet guy <laughs> at that small small church um yeah i was it was an electric experience hearing this piece that you normally hear in you know, large orchestra anywhere from 35 to you know 80 or 90 musicians hearing it in that intimate way those intimate voices you, you heard connections between the lines you didn't hear before the transparency of it was very very engaging and as you know, Guy, we've been talking for a while about how could we do a one to part Messiah in Boston. And so this, this um, gave us that opportunity. First of all, the opportunity to do something for Boston, which we really wanted to do. Also, the opportunity to perform the work this way, uh, at least from the orchestra's point of view, in a way that we'd wanted to do for a while. But how is it? It must have been uh, a challenge for you, Guy, and the other musicians to, to do this music in this setting. What was it like?
0: You know, the challenge mostly had to do with the spacing. You're trying to interact with musicians and musical parts that are now much farther than you're accustomed to having them. And in normal times, when we are sitting closer to one another, we can hear each other's breathing. We can pick up on body movement, and we know what each other is going to do at any given time. And we had to recalibrate that extremely quickly because there was no time to lose in this production. We had a limited time. In the studio, not because of lack of generosity on GBH's part, but because of COVID restrictions. So that's probably the biggest challenge. As for the diminishing of the orchestra to one per part, you know, the loss there is in the loss of winds, which would have been the case whether we had 30 strings or one string per part. But the things that come across to me listening to this performance, you know, if you look at the first publication of The Messiah, it's five lines of music plus the vocal lines. The orchestra is just five lines, two violins, viola, cello, and continuo. And he doesn't indicate where bassoons and oboes come in. That's completely up to you. It's very, very simple. And yet the variety of presentation in this piece is absolutely astounding. There's a reason why we play this piece every year. It stands up to different interpretations, different approaches. It's always great. And I don't think that was lost with this small group of people, the orchestration and the way the orchestra interweaves with the chorus, that's all present. And that's a testament to the production, to be able to bring that out and also to the music, it, it really survives in this way, being an early music ensemble. Uh, you know, we put a lot of stock into research and presenting something that we believe gives a fair representation of what the composer intended. We know that Handel premiered this in Dublin with very small forces, but it wasn't one to a part. And so we struggle with how far we can go and still be true to our personal and institutional mission to give a sense of truth to what we're doing. Uh, but This shows that if Handel was more of a pragmatist and had a smaller theater, which only fit one instrumentalist per part, this work would still have made the impact that it had in 1741 and every year since. And for me, that was one of the biggest takeaways from this experience, how powerful this music is, even under these circumstances. I'm I'm so grateful we got a chance to do it like this. So how different was it, Guy? I know this is your podcast, but... (laughs) <laughs> just
2: one more question. Well, I'm happy to have you ask me questions, sure. What was it like not having the chorus there with you at the same time? I think one of the things I love, love, love about H&H is this uh, sense that when you are together with the chorus, it's not two ensembles, it's one. And it's a unit. And you can hear uh, the instrumentalist playing off the chorus and, and, and vice versa. So you didn't have the opportunity
0: for that this time. How, what was that like? Well, we have an incredible chorus and any time spent in their company and playing along with them is an absolute gift. So it was difficult from that perspective, but I have to say we're pretty well trained, uh, you know, since Harry took over in 2009, the emphasis in every piece that involves the chorus and sometimes pieces that do not is always on the text, you know, the text and play as though you're playing the text. And as a result. I feel like all of us who have done this numerous times know the text so well, it's as though we're singing and we're playing this. In choral movements, most of the time, we're doubling the chorus. With the solo vocalists, that's not the case, but we had the benefit of having them in the room. So in some ways, it was almost as though the chorus were there, because it's such a vivid experience we have with this piece, that it feels like you're hearing the chorus when you play. Of course, we had to be slightly more flexible with what we put down because we would have to fit it with the singers later. And we couldn't take the usual liberties in terms of relaxing the tempo here and there and doing the things we expect to be able to do in performance. But again, the piece survives so well. And the chorus do such an incredible job conveying not just the text clearly, but also the meaning of the text with such a beautiful sound that I think the final product shows that whatever we did in the room worked. Definitely. But
1: if I could jump in on that, one of the things that I think made it work, and and I give so much credit to Ian and to uh, Antonio, our, our brilliant uh, recording engineer, because they realized that the chorus anticipates when they sing. When the chorus recorded, we actually played the video playback a split second early so that the singers could anticipate and breathe and then enter. I and mean, If you listen to it closely, it is, it is perfectly synced up. And that is not technology. That is artistry.
0: I want to focus on one word you said, and that's breathe. When you say that the chorus breathes, you know, That's probably the single most significant loss in not just having to create a project like this, but even performing together under COVID regulations in masks. We string players don't have to breathe in order to play. I mean, we have to breathe in order to stay conscious, but you know, we can produce a sound regardless of our breathing. But whenever we're performing with the chorus or with wind players for that matter, and something is not together, you know in rehearsal The direction from Harry is always do that again. And this time breathe together, even though we don't have to, uh, but that coordination of the breath among the orchestra and coordinating it with the chorus, and by the way, you not so much uh, as hear it, but you feel the breath even in symphony hall, which is a large hall that calibrates the ensemble and creates that sense that we're one entity. And not having that in the room is probably the most significant loss. But the fact that not only were the chorus able to do that and recreate that sense for themselves in doing this, but that you were able to do this and line up that recording of the chorus and the orchestra, which were, of course, made separately. That's kind of a technological manifestation of something our artistry demands. And I'm so grateful you were able to do that And you realize that this was what was necessary to line these people up. And it's exactly the same thing that we use when we are on stage. The breathing is so incredibly central to our performing. And that really comes across to me, at least in the final product. Tony, what were some of the challenges technical or otherwise? You alluded to some already, but what were some of the challenges you thought you'd encounter? getting this project off the ground
1: well the first one was the pandemic and the rules of what could and couldn't be done there was a day i remember david called me and said i think we have a problem and i said what's that he said the state just said no one can sing (laughs) and i i thought he was kidding and david said no the state just issued a that singing you know spreads the virus Mm. (laughs) i remember i was Sitting there going, hmm, that does pose a challenge. But um, (laughs) to to David and the team's credit, they came up with a plan that was ultimately approved by the state. That I think from an artistic standpoint, and I'm I'm staying out of the musical challenges because, as I said at the top of this, uh, one thing I know working with David and working with Harry and working with the orchestra and the chorus is, I don't have to lose a lot of sleep over the artistic quality because you guys are more demanding on yourselves than I am. So that wasn't an issue. The the biggest thing that I think I spent many sleepless nights wrestling with is, okay. what do you do with the visuals? We're now going to TV. It's a whole different world than radio. And what do you do? What narrative is there going to be? And the English major in me and the writer in me said, well, you need a narrative arc. And I just started riffing on the narrative arc of if you begin with the words comfort ye as your launching point, and you tie that to the tragedy of this damn pandemic, what do you begin with? What do you have?
2: Well, Tony, you're leaving out... One, one, one little, I think, uh, factoid that just adds to the drama of this whole thing. Okay, so you can't gather an orchestra together. You can't gather a chorus together. Singing is prohibited. We don't know if we're going to be able to get musicians uh, safely t- together to, to do this. The conductor has said he can't come over from the UK. And then the cameraman that you're going to use to shoot the video gets COVID.
1: Yeah, that was I forgot. You know what? I forgot all about that. We, so it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre footnote in the process. He was all psyched. He'd been in all the meetings, on the on the video meetings and the phone meetings and the discussions, and knew exactly what we were going for. And then the morning that he was on his way, he was actually driving to the Harvard Stadium when his wife called and said his at-home COVID test had come back positive. And he being, you know, a good, I mean, someone else might have gone and done the shooting and said, hell with it, I'm outdoors. But he, you know, did what he should have done. He turned around and went home and isolated until he could get a second test. It turned out probably to have been a false positive because he was fine on the next two tests. But we lost two days of, of shooting time with a guy who was all set to go.
2: And it's all being done on such an incredibly compressed timeline. I think, uh, what was the Leonard Bernstein quote about to achieve greatness, you have to have a great plan and not quite enough time. Yeah, uh, you know, This was that on steroids.
1: I remember seeing the comfort ye the first time. And I think, David, you had the same reaction that I did. I, I, I teared up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything- it- impossible yeah when when the singer says comfort ye and you see the first responder standing in front of a hospital and you see the the beds and the, and the grimness of this and you think comfort ye wow to me was my phone and my email didn't stop from the moment it began long after it ended. Friends just sending notes to me that I'm watching this and I can't stop crying. One of the people who was on WGBH 89.7 texted me and said, we just watched the first 10 minutes. My wife is sitting on the floor whimpering. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the intent. We didn't wanna make people sad, but that's why we called it the Messiah for our time. This is a moment in time. It had a tremendous impact. I mean I, I've obviously watched it a few times and the audience was about twenty something times larger than the number of people who would have seen H and H during your sold out Symphony Hall performances.
0: Yeah. David what has this opportunity to create this production with WGBH meant for h and And what has the response been?
2: Well, I think Tony just pointed to the incredible uh, increase in, in audience. Uh, you know, a, tip, a typical year we will have about 7,000 uh, people that will see Messiah at Symphony Hall with hanlon Haydn Society, which is really terrific. But this year, we had 140,000. That's saw, that's the last number I had. I think it's grown since then. Yeah, it's
1: quite, it's closer to 150.
2: Yeah. For free. It's this is of a piece with how I think about the role of an arts organization like H H in you know, creating a more just and fair society. I think we do have a particular role to play as a member of this community. We have a responsibility to play it and we have the opportunity to play it. And this gave us a chance to reach, engage, communicate with a much broader audience than is normally the case. Uh, you know, the people that started H and H were middle-class, uh, merchants, they were not the upper class. And so this organization has always been about relevance to the community. In fact, that's how you survive, you know, uh, 207 years or some whatever it is now for us, uh, by staying relevant. And this was a way for H and H to continue to maintain its relevance, to demonstrate it and, and really live it. You know, our, our mission statement says that we exist to inspire the intellect, touch the heart, elevate the soul, and connect us all with our shared humanity through transformative experiences of, with broken classical music. So Messiah for our time was exactly that. And You know, I think it's an opportunity that arose from uh, this unusual period of time that we couldn't pass up. And of course, we couldn't have done it without our friends at GBH and without our amazing musicians uh, really made it all happen. Over, and I have to say, you know, it was not easy for you all in the orchestra and chorus. I mean, to 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 go through all of the COVID restrictions in terms of the testing, in terms of the masks, the social distancing, the fact all had to be done with small ensembles. There were actually four groups, right? There was the orchestra other than three groups of eight singers that came in and do all of that safely because the last we wanted to make sure, to the extent possible, that this would all be done with maximum safety for the musicians. It was
0: a challenge. It was definitely challenging. Yeah, definitely challenging. But, you know, absolutely worth it. And this kind of production stands in danger of seeming piecemeal, right? We don't usually make recordings in the classical music world, at least. You know, recording one person, then dubbing another person over that person, and adding a third and a fourth. We're all in the same room working together towards the presentation of one work of art. But when that work is Messiah, you know, such a vivid work for all of us, something we do very often and know very well, And with the kind of partnership GBH provided, it made it feel like that was what was happening. It was very clear what the chorus would do, and I'm sure to each of those groups of singers, it was clear what the other group of singers would do. And of course, we had Ian's direction, which helped tremendously. We could not have done it without direction. But the place this work holds for all of us and the importance of it and our familiarity with it, it made it feel like it was happening at the same time. So it was challenging, but there were clear ways to get through the challenges.
1: Let me just correct one little thing, which is you said there were three groups of singers. And this was one of those moments where I just stepped back and went, Holy cow. There were actually two groups of singers. One of the groups doubled themselves. And what we did is we had two different sessions with the same group, but we positioned them differently so they filled in different spaces on the soundstage. It was, again, technology coming to the aid of art. Yeah. It was, it was I remember thinking he took the same eight voices, had them sing again, and they sound different.
0: Which is incredible, because this is something that a listener enjoying Messiah at Symphony Hall might not realize, which is that one soprano doesn't sound like another soprano. Just like you and I might occupy the same vocal range, but we have distinct voices. It's the same with a singing voice. And conductors, music directors, choral directors, they think long and hard about where to place each person to create a particular kind of blend. And in what would have been an otherwise artificial way, you guys were able to do that in, in much the same way that we do in live performances with technological manipulation of positioning and the way things are recorded. And to give it the, I mean, it's not an impression. It, it is a choral sound. If you took my voice and doubled it four times over itself, you would have a particular kind of sound. This performance sounds like a chorus. It's an incredible achievement. I, I commend you both for creating this opportunity. Uh, Tony, I asked David about the meaning of the project and the response h h has received. I can't imagine that many of the h h community do not also listen to CRB and GBH, but I suppose it's possible that to some in your community, this may have been the first exposure to the Handel and Haydn Society. And potentially to the Messiah, you've mentioned uh, some of the responses that came in as the first showing was happening, as the premiere was, was occurring. What has been the response you've heard since then?
1: Well, internally I calculated that in order to do this, forgetting H and H's part, (laughs) which is kind of hard to forget, but just from a production and every other aspect required me to bring in contributions from 13 different departments in the building. This is an incredible achievement. So the reactions that we've gotten are, are I think, what you'd expect. First of all, tremendous appreciation for just having done it. But that's a, that's a low bar for me. I don't like that bar. The bar I like to think about are the people who wrote and said, this is the, the medicine that feels right at this moment. A couple of people I know wrote in, about how this is the only semblance of a holiday that they feel they've had. If you play the music and people love it, that's what matters. And I think what this project did is it took arguably one of the five greatest pieces of choral music. It kept a tremendous tradition of one of the great arts institutions, not only in our city, but in our country. Uh, It kept a, a tradition alive. And at a time when we were struggling, struggling mightily for tradition and ports in a storm, anchors to hold on to, it was one that I won't forget. The people who watched it, and that's nearly 150,000, had, had an experience that will be locked in their memories and that they'll they'll be able to tell people, you know, I saw that Messiah that was done during the pandemic. That was amazing. And that's what matters to me.
2: So I have a I have a short little anecdote, uh, guy. If I could just just uh, Absolutely. Uh, offer this, so I I uh, you you can't tell because this is not a video podcast, but I just got my haircut. Oh, and uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. It, uh, <laughs> I look great. Anyway, I know you do. So I was uh, getting up, you know, putting my uh, jacket back on to leave the salon. And, uh, this guy walks in next appointment, you know, I don't know him at all. And, uh, Michael Raffi, the, the uh, salon owner says, Oh, Steven, this is, uh, David Sneed, the CEO of Hanlon Heinz society. And the guy just holds his arms out and he says, thank you for Messiah. Mm. <laughs> mm. so total stranger. Uh, So I think this this production has made a mark, Tony.
1: Somebody who watched it wrote back, I just watched The Messiah. I live in New York. Clearly, I have to go to Boston next year to hear their Messiah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Messiah is the key to peace between our two cities. Well, gentlemen, I'm proud and honored to have taken part in this production, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to speak with you both. This has been an enlightening conversation. Before we end though, I'd like to acknowledge you, Tony, for your work at GBH and CRB and for the stand you've taken, not only for the arts and their reach to as many people as possible, but for Boston artists who make regular appearances on the stations through live performance, broadcasts and recordings, your support of the work H&H does is something that we all cherished and were grateful for before the pandemic and even more so going through it. Uh, I thank you so, so much for this and for sharing your insight with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Guy.
0: And David, you don't get away scot-free. I want to thank you for your leadership at h You've coalesced the skill and commitment of our administration, the care and generosity of our board, and the love of our patrons to keep the society active and providing our listeners with moving content during the crisis and all the while supporting our musicians. It's important to mention with sustenance, which has been very, very hard to come by elsewhere. So I thank you very much for that and for being here as well. Well, thank you, Guy. I feel very fortunate to be associated with H&H. David Sneed is President and CEO of the Handel & Haydn Society and Tony Rudell is General Manager, GBH Music, and Station Manager at WCRB. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydnorg podcast for biographical and supplemental material including links to Tony's books, as well as a link to Messiah for Our Time. I hope you join us for the next episode.